everybody, sorry about the late posting. This was supposed to come out much earlier this week, weekend, to coincide with the release of the Halloween movie, the latest Halloween Kills, which made a small killing at the box office, actually made around $50 million over the weekend, which is pretty good for this pandemic time, especially since it was already available on Peacock to stream at, well, as well at home, so obviously people still into this series. I was hoping to get this one out earlier, but as usual, life gets in the way. It's very hard to keep a standard production schedule, but I did want to get this out. As for the rest of the week, it's been pretty busy. Succession Season 3 begins tonight, and you can expect to see a recap of that coming pretty quick on the heels of this one, considering how late this episode's come out. And of course, we have the finale, the season finale, of Only Murders in the Building coming on Tuesday, and that episode should be out Tuesday or maybe Wednesday. So I hope you've caught up on that. It's a really entertaining show, and it's wrapping up. Last week's episode doesn't give me tons of hope that they're really going to fully land the ending here, but I still have hope. There's a lot of unanswered questions, and there's still some things that have yet to be revealed. So I am curious to see how it turns out. I'm hoping for the best. I think, it, if nothing else, the rest of the season has been very strong up until this point. Make sure you follow and subscribe to our podcast so you can get all those episodes when they become available. Now, as far as today's content, I'm going to have some recommendations. Then I'm going to give you a review of Halloween Kills and where kind of a movie-by-movie movie recap of the whole entire crazy Halloween series. Now, honestly, when I was kind of excited to see this film, I didn't think, I didn't know what my reaction was going to be to it. I'm not hugely vested in the Halloween series, but I was kind of excited to kind of get this review out there. And honestly, I'll be completely frank, I came out of watching that film so unhappy with the film. Like, I don't know why I'm not very vested in the franchise, and yet I was really, really irritated <laughs> once I saw the, the film itself. So I'll tell you all the reasons why I'm trying to figure out why it bothered me so much. So I'll tell you all the things I didn't like about the film, mostly things I didn't like about the film, but I'm gonna try to be a little more pragmatic in my review. Something that may be useful to you who, who are listening to this. So what I would say is, like I mentioned, I'm not hugely vested in the Halloween franchise. And I'd say your appreciation of this specific film is probably gonna be very tightly correlated to how you felt about the last film, the 2018 refresh of the series. Before I get into my whole hot take and maybe not so hot take at this point, I do have some recommendations for you. So my first recommendation for you would be to definitely watch, and I think very few people have actually seen this film. They probably know about it, but they very few have actually seen it. And the film from 1974 is Black Christmas, directed by Bob Clark. Bob Clark would eventually make Porky's, believe it or not, but he started as an indie Canadian filmmaker. This film also has Olivia Hussey in it, and more importantly to nostalgic 70 viewers is that Margot Kidder, I believe this is either her first or maybe one of her very first um, appearances. Actually, she did Sisters with Brian De Palma, so I don't know exactly how that ties in here. So definitely one of her earliest performances. And now be sure this is the original Black Christmas from 1974. It's been remade multiple times. This is the one, the original one we're talking about. Now, the reason I recommend this one is that first of all, it is incredibly important film to horror fans in the fact that it is a direct inspiration for Halloween. As a matter of fact, John Carpenter actually spoke to Bob Clark and told him, you should make this like a series of films that are different holidays. And he thought, well, maybe Halloween would be a good example. And he kind of pitched a sequel around Halloween versus Christmas. And Bob Clark says, I don't want to make that movie, but you should make it. And there you go. Four years later, we get Halloween. It also is interesting because it was obviously influenced by some of these murder mystery-like proto-slashers from Italy, the Giallo um, movement, Dario Argento being the most famous director of that genre. So definitely it was, uh, this Black Christmas movie was definitely influenced by Giallo, as was all of slasher films, by the way. But in a way, Black Christmas is an inspiration on Giallo as well, because it's a year before, maybe two years, I 
at this point before we see deep red from Dario Argento where we have once again the killer's POV so very very important film but the reason I would tell everybody to watch it is not just that it's kind of like historically interesting this is a really creepy film <laughs> this serial killer uh, definitely influenced some of the Palma Brian De Palma's films later but there's something really creepy about this killer and we're in his POV which is very interesting when you consider this is pre-Halloween so track that down it's pretty easy to stream you can definitely catch it on Canopy if you haven't signed up for Canopy I highly recommend it you just need a library card if your library is part of this network you get to watch all this free streaming content and it's also available on a bunch of other things probably Hulu probably Tubi it's all over the place so I'll put some it check my show notes I'll put some links into where you can find it but it's excellent and easily available the second film I'd recommend for you is a low-budget horror movie from 2006 called Behind the Mask the Rise of Leslie Vernon. And this is a found footage movie, very low budget, but very clever, and I think underappreciated. And it basically takes place in a world where Jason and Michael Myers and even Freddy Krueger are actual characters. Freddy Krueger is not supernatural. They have an explanation for his killings, in which are very clever, by the way, inside the film. But the idea is that it's basically a world where serial killers, these celebrity serial killers are real, and they basically compete with each other for like the highest kill count and their most notorious reputation etc and what we have is this documentary filmmaker is interviewing this character called leslie vernon who seems he's very charismatic he seems very funny he explains how michael myers can walk so slowly and jason as well but still catch up to his victims it's very funny the, the sequence in the film by the way it's like kind of a uh, uh this ability to look like you're moving slowly even though you're actually almost at a run and it's <laughs> it's very clever so this documentarian in this film has been reached out to by this by this person and he basically brings her to say i'm going to be the next big serial killer and she has this uh experience with him where she's never where we as the viewers are never sure how much of this is kidding around how much of this is he's serious and it goes in some pretty clever places so i do recommend that it's pretty easy to find as well once again check the show notes for links it's available probably on most of these free-ish um, streaming platforms like 2B and Pluto and IMDb TV. All of these kind of have a lot of these uh, available. It's definitely available on AMC if you have the AMC Plus um, app. But once again, check the show notes. I'll track down other places you can see this. And my last recommendation, this is a very recent film, which I would recommend. And it's very easily available once again because it's on HBO. And it's just from last year. It came out right when COVID happened. And it's a pretty clever film. It's called Freaky. You may have heard of it. And basically it is Freaky Friday and Friday the 13th mashed together. So it's Freaky Friday the 13th. But I guess that was too long for the title. So I just called it Freaky. And basically it's a body swap comedy, but where the victim of the serial killer swaps bodies with the serial killer. So now the serial killer is now a teenage girl and the teenage girl is now inside of this large um, killer's body who happens to be Vince Vaughn giving a very funny performance. He hasn't given funny performances in a while. And he's funny here, imitating a teenage girl. <laughs> and he's actually pretty good, pretty entertaining. So it's not great. Once again, none of these movies, to be honest with you, the one, well, Black Christmas, I think is pretty great. But The Rise of Leslie Vernon and Freaky, neither one of these are really, truly great films, but both very interesting. And if you're a fan of slashers, I think you really, really appreciate them. So track them down. So with that out of the way, Halloween Kills. My grandmother was right. The boogeyman was real. It's over. We can't hurt anyone ever again. No one told you. Told me what? Somebody in there? Michael Myers is alive. 
Okay, so David Gordon Green directed and wrote this with Danny McBride of all people. And if you're not familiar with those people are, it's kind of a strange stew of people who are involved here. David Gordon Green started making very low budget films right out of uh, college. George Washington is one, films like All the Real Girls where Zoe Deschanel got her start. And he's had a very interesting career because he then transitioned to making these kind of very dark films like Undertow, a crime drama, and Snow Angels about a family dealing with the death of a child. And then he went and made these kind of almost uh, improvised comedy slash dramas like a pretty good film called Prince Avalanche with um, Paul Rudd, if you haven't seen that one. But in the meantime, he was also establishing himself not only on TV, but uh, started to direct comedies for this kind of like this new brat pack of comedians who came along. Like, so for example, he did Pineapple Express, which I actually think is very funny. I'm a big fan of that one. And there were diminishing returns. He made Your Highness, which I don't think is as bad as everybody said it was. He made The Sitter with Jonah Hill, which is pretty bad, in my opinion. But then he was still making these minimalist type dramas. Like he made the movie Joe, which has one of um, Nicolas Cage's best performance post blockbuster for him when he basically started to churn out these cheap action movies to Redbox. Um, that's when, uh, you know, his, his uh, quality really went down. But he actually has a, one of his standout performances in, in the movie called Joe, which directed, once again, by... David Gordon Green. And then he really has his run of simultaneously starting to make these prestigious Hollywood-ish movies like Our Brand is Crisis and Manglehorn with Al Pacino and Stronger with Jake Gyllenhaal, which all got pretty mixed critical reactions, mixed to positive, but none of them really took off. And as a matter of fact, like Our Brand is Crisis was kind of a disaster. But simultaneously on TV, he was becoming hugely successful. He teamed up with Danny McBride and made Eastbound and Down, which is a hugely successful and very, very funny, one of the funniest comedies of the past decade or so. And he just started churning out other TV productions. He does Red Oaks on Amazon, which is still on the, I believe might still be on the air. He did Vice Principals, which you may have caught on HBO once again. And he's currently direct uh, producing, I should say, Mystic Quest on Apple TV, as well as Dickinson on Apple TV. Oh, and The Righteous Gemstones on uh, HBO also. Danny McBride once again. So he's a very busy guy and he's done, had a very interesting career starting off with this like kind of very low budget films still likes to dip into these almost improvised low-budget films that he kind of edits into a story after the fact. And then it turns out that like he's going to reboot the Halloween series. <laughs> so we finally get to the Halloween series. So what I found so weird about the 2018 film, which I thought was okay, and I would say like as your quick thumbnail reaction to this, if you loved that movie, I think you will like this movie. You won't like it as much but you might like it. You might not like it also, but you might like it, this current one, Halloween Kills. I think if you didn't like the last Halloween movie and you didn't like what they did with the franchise, I can't imagine anyone liking this film. And, and honestly, anybody who's not vested in Halloween at this point at all, I can't imagine why you would watch this current film. But back to that 2018 reboot, or I guess it was a, it, it, it's so strange. It's a direct sequel to the first Halloween, Jamie Lee Curtis, 1978, 40 years later, removing everything else that happened. No Halloween 2, the Rob Zombie Halloweens are gone, no weird, um, you know, witch cult from the, uh, what, the Thorn Saga, as they call it, the Halloween 4, 5, and 6, all out the window, all that weird stuff, which I'll cover in some detail if you're not familiar with it at the end of this episode. But all that is out. Oh, and Halloween H2O, which I actually think is pretty good, by the way, from at the 20-year mark, they had rebooted the franchise yet again, also with Jamie Lee Curtis, as a direct sequel to Halloween 2, and had thrown out everything else. Now we have a direct sequel to Halloween 1, throwing out everything, including Halloween 2. <laughs> the original Halloween 2, because there's more than one Halloween 2. This is also confusing. 
But long story short, this is a direct sequel to Halloween 1, 1978, and nothing else in the franchise has occurred, period. And in that movie, I mean, minor spoilers, I can't imagine anyone's not surprised by this, he escapes and is coming back to his hometown, and he has a confrontation with Jamie Lee Curtis, and they trap him in the basement because she's been apparently so scarred by this experience, and this is a critique I'm going to have, by the way, so scarred by this experience 40 years ago that she has been prepping for his return this whole entire time. And everybody thinks she's a total kook and a crackpot. She's got explosives, she's got guns, she's got a, a kill room in her basement. She's got everything ready for him to come. He shows up, they trap her, her daughter, and her granddaughter, a multi-generational tag team here, trap him in the basement, set him on fire, and that's the end. And they rush her off to the hospital because she's been stabbed in the meantime. This film picks up immediately after that film. Immediately. She's literally being rushed off to the ambulance. The firefighters showed up, show up at the house to put out the fire. And of course, and in so doing, they allow Michael to escape. And then Michael starts to rampage through this town, killing everybody. I mean everybody. The uh, kill count in this film is astonishing. <laughs> really, really, really high. So that's where I, it, at this point, I'm going to spoil the movie. So if any of this sounds interesting to you, stop now, go check out the, the, the movie. Even if you want to hate watch it, just to be a completist, go for it. Oh, and, and by the way, and if you do still want to hear like my commentary on um, the rest of the franchise and all the kookiness there, jump ahead in about 15 minutes, I'd say. All right, so for whoever's left, if you don't care, or if you're just curious to know what happens, there's not much else to say. Let me just kind of break down what does work and doesn't work here. I'd say the one thing that does work here is they have taken Michael, uh, they've made him into a truly imposing character who really feels like a legacy to that original Michael. He just kind of is so deadpan in everything he does. It really does feel like the same character. But at the same time, without going to the whole Rob Zombie, new metal approach, they've made him legitimately uh, creepy and brutal. Like he really is brutal. So that's the one positive. The look of the film, he kind of does a good job of trying to keep that kind of analog 70s look that which he did pull off with the last film. And now let me tell you all the things I do not like about this movie. My first criticism is we have this situation where, and this is already legacy from the last one, but we have to believe that even though we have cut out all the other stuff, she, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis, Laurie Strode is no longer, because we cut that out of mythology, she is not his sister, right? Not. They've taken that out of the storyline. And yet there's this connection between the two of them. Why? She's been prepping her whole entire life. Now, don't get me wrong. This is horrible. This person came along and killed her friends that night. But now 40 years have gone by. And uh, the fact that she'd never, ever, ever let it go, it, in a way, it's as if saying that she was in the right for being so single-mindedly fixated. I mean, this doesn't really speak well <laughs> for people out there who are victims who are trying to get over something. If you say, don't ever get over it because they are coming for you. So I don't know, the messaging is a little weird and I just don't buy it. I just don't buy that someone's just gonna sit around and do nothing for the rest of their lives waiting for this killer to show back up again. So he's back and they've cut out all this other mythology. So you could be something by intentionally grounding this more, you could start turning this into maybe a psychological drive that we don't know yet. It could They could flesh this out. Instead, they have cut out the supposed supernatural elements of this. They don't wanna go that whole crazy, you know, Satan's child, thorn, cult crap but and once again straight up spoilers here this guy gets at one point he's run over he's beaten with pipes he is stabbed multiple times he is shot multiple times he is shot in the face he is stabbed in the spine he has he has literally has a pitchfork pushed all the way through him and this guy gets up and just keeps 
walking, nothing touches him. He doesn't bleed. He doesn't like, so at this point, he is a supernatural force. So why did we go bend over backwards to take the legacy, you know, take this series into a more grounded, to turn him into Jason? I mean, and, and that's my biggest critique here. The big interesting take on Michael Myers, and he's not an interesting character, by the way. So to be totally honest and to defend the, the filmmakers here, I don't even know why they dragged this series on for so long. There's not enough there to make it work as great. I think absolutely great as the first film is. There's not enough here to keep this thing going. But the solution is we'll make him into Mike. Uh, we'll make him into Jason from Friday the 13th. Like he's unkillable. You know, it doesn't matter. Like blow off his head, you know, put him in space. It doesn't matter. <laughs> He'll come back. <laughs> so it's like... Uh, Okay, fine. So he's just a supernatural being, uh, unkillable. And uh, and then why is he so fixated on coming back and killing everybody in his town? No reason. Just like, I mean, it's just like Jason, right? Just like comes back and like, hey, I see a kid, I kill him. And it's not even kids, right? He kills anybody. He kills adults, children, you name it. So, I mean, there's a lot of brutal kills and this mythology is a mess. Like, I don't know, but that's not the worst of it. The thing that made me so absolutely angry is that if they had just given us a Friday the 13th movie with lots of people getting killed in creative ways, I mean, then you're basically sitting there once again, like a Friday 13th, the real protagonist is Michael Myers. You're there to watch him kill kids and, and other idiots who should know better. Like, I mean, there are 20 times when anybody could have basically made a smart choice in this film and they wouldn't have died, but instead they get killed. And once again, it's just a Friday 13th movie, right? We're just watching, we're just there to watch people do stupid, make stupid decisions and get killed by Michael. So, okay, make it a Friday 13th movie, but that's not what they do. They spend so much time, first of all, Jamie Lee Curtis is in the hospital room by herself and with, actually, with not by herself, but with very few people. So she's sidelined from the main plot Well, Michael just goes and kills anybody he wants to and nobody does anything about it other than, I guess, yeah, <laughs> call the... I mean, they don't even call the cops. I was going to say they call the cops after the fact. They don't even call the cops. They just, you know, let themselves get killed and let their neighbors get killed. And they run away and don't even tell the cops that Michael's on the loose killing people. Uh, they could at least warn the people in their neighborhood, but nobody does that because that would mean the movie would end pretty quickly. So just one stupid decision after another. And meanwhile, the film can't even just acknowledge the fact that that's all it is. They try to put in this social commentary about this, this, um, mob mentality where the mob is going to become vigilantes and like go after Michael and in so doing oh by the way led by Anthony Michael Hall I'm not a huge Anthony Michael Hall fan but boy this is an especially bad performance for him or I should say it's a pretty standard performance for him but absolutely terrible they're using him badly he plays Tommy Doyle by the way who's been in the franchise on and off for multiple films so wow what a mess like I said, you're basically taking, you're throwing out this whole mythology. You know, he's after his sister. It's a family thing. Let's throw that out the window. He's not supernatural. Let's throw that out the window. And now he has no rationale for coming back because he doesn't have this familial connection anymore. But he is a supernatural being. And we don't know why supernatural just happens. I would say that the one thing that I'm slightly intrigued with is now that they're introducing something, something supernatural here, that I'm curious to be like, where are they going to take this story in the next film, which is obviously going to be the last one. And they're definitely intending to wrap things up there. So I am kind of curious that like, do they have a plan? But my gut instinct is that there is no plan. Like this is just a Friday the 13th movie now. That's it. So pretty disappointing. And, and like I said, I think that <laughs> the reason I think I was so mad and I had to kind of think about why, because I'm really not vested in this series, by the way, but why I was so mad was because I felt like it was just such a mess. They're saying that vigilantism is wrong, but then Laurie's right. And she's basically, it's negating what the last film basically stated because she was right, assuming that this was going to happen to her. And then of course, when the mob turns up and they say, Laurie was right, let's go do what she couldn't do. They're like, no, this is bad. So I don't get it. 
and I'm, I'm not even in favor, by the way, that I think that these idiotic vigilantes who kill the wrong person and go on this rampage, I'm not on their side. I just think that the film itself is just wasting its time. Just now we just have not only the victims being idiots, being killed by Michael, we now have these, basically everybody in the film is just one idiot after another. And I think the film thinks it's saying something relevant here. And I mean, I'm not getting anything out of it. So, wow, just... <laughs> I'm not a fan. And yet, I will probably tune in for the last film just to see. Maybe I won't watch it, but I'll be tuning in for the spoilers, let's say. And, uh, and maybe they'll prove me wrong. Well, we'll see. through the franchise. Like I mentioned before, this is kind of groundbreaking in the time. It became, you know, came before Friday 13th, before Nightmare on Elm Street, and before just all the tons and tons and tons of slasher films that came out in the 80s and the 90s and beyond, and continues to this day. But 1978, John Carpenter, Deborah Hill, his girlfriend, I believe at the time, and writing partner, write the script, really sharp script, incredibly low budget. I'm, I'm not going to go into the whole production of this film. It's pretty amazing the way they built it. There's a whole podcast that Amy Nicholson produced that you can track down. It's about the history of Halloween. Excellent. Check it, check it out. But this tiny micro-budgeted movie came out and was a total phenomenon. I think it cost, I don't know, $300,000, I'm guessing. And it made around $40 million? I mean, that was in its original run. It's made hundreds of millions of dollars since then. So it was a massive, massive success. And really became a template. You know, we had seen movies like The Exorcist become these massive successes and even Rosemary's Baby. But those were big Hollywood productions. They were not quickie, low-budget horror films, which really wasn't the case in the 70s. So it almost goes back to the, like the films from the 50s with these low-budget horror movies that, uh, you know, would make a little bit of money and every once in a while become huge films. And by the way, Blumhouse... Jason Blum, producer, has basically followed this recipe now and become a massively successful horror movie producer. And he is producing, by the way, not coincidentally, the, these new Halloween films. But John Carpenter, the beginning, or near the beginning of a very successful career, he had uh, kind of underappreciated. Unfortunately, he's, uh, his last few movies, he rarely works anymore. His last few movies, not that good, but he had quite a great run and, and a lot of really, you know, uh, Escape from New York the the thing oh my god the thing one of the greatest horror movies one of the best movies of all times honestly so a long string of, of hits and he has a whole we need to have a whole conversation a side conversation about him as well but that's the first film so i think it's 1980 probably right after friday the 13th they uh want to or maybe it was 81 i should say they want to cash in on this carpenter is not interested in making another halloween movie he had made The Fog, though, which was not a slasher film, by the way, but a horror film. And he didn't want to go back into the Halloween situation. He did write the script, and they did significantly increase the kill count. Uh, and there's a bit of a correlation here, by the way. There's a whole section of this current film that takes place in a hospital. So I think this is almost like a troll of the audience. If you are a fan and you're seeing Laurie going to the hospital, you think you're about to see Halloween 2, and then the film zags. But that film, Halloween 2, is very, in my opinion, it, it's, it's nowhere near as good as the first one. But it is a solid slasher film and it really becomes like almost a recipe for slasher films going forward as well as I mean I was gonna say as well as Friday 13th but actually the first Friday 13th at that point hadn't really become the stereotypical slasher either so really Halloween 2 and probably Friday 13th part 2 
become like the prototypes for all the slasher films to come later. Then we get the Halloween 3, a film that I actually kind of love. <laughs> if you've never seen Halloween 3, this is the, you know, the um, redheaded stepchild. Well, no offense to redheads out there, by the way. So it is like the the forgotten the forgotten Halloween movie. It has nothing to do with Michael Myers, and the audience has completely rejected it. They were furious about this, and it destroyed the franchise at the time. But I recommend you watch this. Don't think of it as a Halloween movie. Carpenter's plan was to make Halloween films into like an anthology, where every Halloween there would be a different type of movie. And I think the mistake they made was by putting Halloween 2 be about Michael Myers, and then they put this one out after. I actually think this is a really entertaining movie. It's really strange. It has cyborgs in it. It has wizards in it. It has curses in it. It has some a really disturbing ending. <laughs> it's uh, it's really good, I think, uh, but really weird. Like if you like weird movies, though, if you're like kind of a, a fan of weird cinema, this is one of the weirdest movies that ever came out of Hollywood, and I do recommend it. But don't expect that it's a Michael Myers movie, and I think you'll appreciate it as what it's supposed to be. That's basically the the reaction to that film basically re ruined the Halloween franchise at the time. Uh, but Halloween four came, and this is where they started introducing this kind of supernatural cult. Halloween four is fine. It's a decent slasher movie. The kills are pretty creepy. Michael's back, but it's just okay. By the way, speaking of creepy, that's another complaint I have about the current Halloween movie, Halloween Kills. It is not scary at all. There's not a single scare in the whole entire film. Not for me, anyway. But uh, that's a big disappointment, I'd say. Halloween 4, I'd say, probably has some decent scares in it, right? He still is enough in the background where you don't know where he's there or not, which creates suspense, as opposed to him just kind of walking down the street and just massacring everybody he sees. It becomes almost like an action movie. Then we have the terrible Halloween 5 and Halloween 6. Um... It gets more down the supernatural route. There's a cult, there's body swaps, there's possessions. I, I don't even remember these films, to be honest with you. I think I saw one of them. Uh, don't remember which one it was. This is weird stuff. And not very good. I mean, these are really considered the absolute worst of the series. And then on the 20th anniversary in 1998, right at the peak coming off of Scream, the Scream films, we have the 20th anniversary of Halloween, and they make Halloween H2O, which is actually a pretty big hit from the same studio that made Scream. And it has some of that humor in it, but I think what is I like about it, this is basically becomes a direct sequel to Halloween 2. They maintain the Laurie is Michael's sister storyline. And it's pretty interesting what they do there. I think Jamie Lee Curtis gives a really good performance. Some of the kills are a little, very much of that, I know you did last summer type ilk, but I really think what she does is really interesting. She is haunted by this relationship with Michael. She knows Michael's coming back. She has kids. So she's trying to protect her son from him. And uh, it's an interesting uh, film. And it ends with her killing Michael, which of course they undo immediately in the next film, Halloween Resurrection. This is the one with Buster Rhymes, where they're all trying to stay inside the Michael Myers house. And Michael just wants to chill. He just wants to chill out. He just wants to sit on his sofa. He has killed Laurie, by the way. So, you know, Laurie doesn't kill him in the previous time. Jamie Lee Curtis says, you can put me in the poster, but Michael's got to kill me and then I got to be out of this franchise. So she gets killed at the beginning. And the whole rest of it is basically Buster Rhymes trying to record a show inside the house and Michael is stalking the people who are producing this Ghost Hunter style show uh, within the Myers house. It's horrendous, but it is a direct sequel to the previous film, which is actually pretty good. It kind of ruins it with this stupidity of it. And then we get the Rob Zombies. Halloween 1 and Halloween 2. Wow. I am an apologist for Rob Zombie. I actually like the Lords of Salem, believe it or not. And I mean, it's it's it, he totally fetishizes Rosemary's Baby in that film, as well as, you know, every other horror classic. You know, he, he kind of integrates all his old fandom into these films. But it works there. I like The Devil's Rejects. Um, so I'm an apologist. I, I like some of his films. I, he's a complete, I mean, or at least in his films, he's a complete nihilist. But there is something, even in, in their brutality, there's something compelling 
appalling about some of his films. That being said, I do not like what he did with the Halloween franchise. I mean, if you haven't seen it, we have a whole flashback sequence, or, or I should say we, we start in the past where we meet Michael as a kid, and he's not a suburban kid like we do in the first Halloween movies. And the whole point of these Halloween films, by the way, explicitly what Carpenter has said, it was supposed to be like, you know, as a reaction to people who were like all, you know, the white flight from the urban areas to the suburbs. He was trying to like kind of... Um, throw in the face of these upwardly mobile generation of people who had kind of escaped the urban areas, you know, in fear to move to these uh, suburban areas. And he had grown up in this kind of, you know, in a suburban area, basically, and saying like, you know, things aren't so great here either, by the way. And he basically wanted to put a killer right in there. And he wanted to show explicitly in that film that when Laurie knocks on the door asking for help, Michael just casually walks across the street because A, no one thinks anything bad's going to happen. He's just a trick-or-treater as far as they know. And they don't let her in the house. They don't help her out. So she's still in the street by herself. And that is the point of those films, to kind of say that evil is right there. It's in, the, in your face and you don't even notice it. And it's also in your inactivity, your lack of compassion. So instead, we get Rob Zombie's version of Michael where he comes from this very abusive white trash family and we have this whole you know he's got a stripper mom of course he has a stripper mom because that's like rob zombie's modus operandi every character has the same backstory and, and and history so yeah so we get this whole backstory unnecessary and uh you know this somehow makes michael into a monster when he's an adult and you know then we get this kind of really really brutal kills to its credit it kind of does up the gore but there is something legitimately transgressive about some of those scenes but when he just jumped forward to 1978 you know becomes kind of a slavish recreation of what Carpenter did with just a way more gore and stuff. And like I said, some of that actually works, but if he had thought about this, had kind of more of a thematic concept for what he was trying to say, maybe those scenes would have worked better. And we completely do not need the backstory. And then he makes the totally bonkers, you know, worth seeing just because it's I think terrible. Some people like you know think this is a classic. I think it's absolutely terrible, but it is kind of fascinating. This this um, strange Halloween two where he's inside. We're we're inside of Michael's head all the time. Like he is seeing his dead mother as like an angel figure, and he is killing all of his relatives and stuff because he wants to reunite with them in death. Like it's crazy. But um, and it, but he's really going for something. It's not very good, <laughs> but he is going for something. And uh, and that's where we were until we got to this uh, Gordon Green trilogy, which we'll be wrapping up next year with Halloween Dies. Oh boy, it is not going to die. I'm sure they're going to reboot this franchise in another year or two or whatever. Anyway, so that was my walkthrough of this whole <laughs> crazy Halloween legacy. Hope you enjoyed some of that. For me, you know, you really just need to watch, first watch Black Christmas, then watch Halloween, the Carpenter one. If you're a real big fan of 80 slashers, check out Halloween 2. It's got some crazy kills in it, and it really becomes a template for those type of slashers. I mean, if you really love seeing Michael Myers stalk people, check out Halloween 4. It's worth it for that. And then H2O. I think H2O is pretty good. And I honestly feel like it's a better sequel to the original films than Gordon Green's films have been, the recent ones. And of course, if you've seen Gordon Green's film and liked it, you're going to definitely watch this one. But hey, I can't stop you. <laughs> hey, I watched it, right? Hey, and I didn't even like it. So that's that. So I hope you enjoy this as much as you can. We will have a, another horror episode, another horror corner coming next weekend, hopefully earlier in the weekend, so it comes late. Uh, but in between there and now, you're going to see us recapping Succession and talking about the finale of Only Murders in the Building. Once again, make sure you subscribe to us so you know when these episodes come available. And lastly, I'd love to hear from you guys. What do you think of the Halloween franchise? Did you like this film? Did you like Halloween Kills? Make an excuse for me why this is worthwhile. I'd love to hear it, by the way. I'd love you to change my mind. So drop me an email at needsomeinter 
at gmail.com and I'll talk to you soon.